It is my pleasure to be with you all here today. Uh, we've been looking forward to this day for some time, and um, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to share God's Word with you and to serve you here today in Princeville. We've already met um, a bunch of you, and I'm looking forward to meeting some more of you after the service during uh, the potluck. So until then... Um, we will look to God's Word. Our text today is in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Um, but before we get into the text, I kind of want to give you a brief inter, uh, introduction to where we're at here in the book of Revelation to kind of get you up to speed uh, with where we're headed. And I know that Pastor Chris has been going through the letters to the seven churches uh, with you, which will be a good introduction to where we're at here in Revelation chapter 5. So I'm kind of just going to give you a thousand-foot view of everything that's been taking place in the book up until this point, and then we'll get into the text. So up until this point, there had been um, scattered persecution throughout the churches, but never a full-on systematic persecution like that which would befall the church in the coming days. As a matter of fact, when John's writing the letter, he said that they were already experiencing persecution Um, as a result of this tribulation. He says, I'm your fellow partner with you in the tribulation, and that he had actually been exiled to Patmos as a result of this persecution. In chapter 2, he tells Thyatira that some of them are getting ready to be thrown into prison for 10 days as a result of this persecution. And in chapter 3, he tells the Philadelphians that there's a trial that's about to come upon the whole world, and that they are to remain faithful through it, and he will preserve them through it. So the constant refrain throughout the beginning of the letter is Jesus Christ's exhortation to the church to remain faithful in the coming persecution. And if they are, he will grant them a crown of life, a reign with them now, and eternal life in the future. So that kind of gets us up to speed with where we're at here in Revelation chapter 5, and we will read the text, and then we'll get into it. This is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. These are the words of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and discern its truth and then take that truth and apply it to our lives. We pray, God, that you would help us to do that today by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open it up to us so that we might behold marvelous things therein. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So, in the world today, there's a lot of talk about purpose, like, what's your purpose in life? You know, does any of the stuff that you really do matter? And different people have given different answers to these questions. Some say that um, our purpose is found in our family. Uh, Some others say that purpose is found in our friends, our jobs, our vocations, our careers, all these sorts of things. And all of these things are good within themselves. But the question is, at the end of the day, do they ultimately matter? Do they, do they really give you meaning and purpose? And I would submit to you that in Jesus Christ, they do, but only because He has conquered. Because Christ has risen, and because Christ has ascended, and because Christ sits on the throne... And because Christ has conquered, it all matters. In our text today, we're going to see that there are three things that matter as a result of Jesus Christ conquering. Number one, we see that because Jesus Christ has conquered, our suffering matters. Number two, that because Jesus Christ has conquered, our worship matters. And number three, Because Jesus Christ has conquered, our service matters. So we see that first point, because Jesus has conquered, our suffering matters in verses 1-6 through of Revelation chapter 5. But before we get into chapter 5, I want to backtrack a moment and talk about what happens in chapter 4. Because what happens in chapter 4 is naturally connected to what happens in chapter 5, and it kind of lays the groundwork for what's taking place. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 1 in your Bibles, uh, you'll see that John was called up into the sky and given a glimpse of a divine worship service taking place in the heavenlies. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John is called up into heaven by this trumpet, by the voice of God, which is similar to our call to worship at the beginning of the service. John is experiencing a divine worship service here in the heavenlies. And if that is a divine worship service that he's experiencing, we'd expect to see things similar in that worship service to the one that we experience here on earth, right? And this is just what we see. 
So this is John's call to worship, his call to enter into the throne room of God, which is very similar to our call to worship at the beginning of the service. The, the minister announces that his voice, with his voice God's call to worship to us, and we enter in to worship God. Now what does John see next? Uh, John then sees angels and heavenly creatures and 24 elders all falling down and worshiping before the throne of God. John is invited into the throne room of God to witness this awesome sight. And over the next 12 chapters, John is going to see this divine worship service taking place. Over the next 12 chapters, you have the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And the opening of the seven seals can be likened unto the opening of the word of God in our services and the reading of the message of God's Word. Uh, the seven trumpets being trumpeted out can be likened unto the preaching of the preacher as he preaches the Word of God in our service. And the seven bowls being poured out can be likened unto the sacramental bowls of baptism and the Lord's Supper being poured out in our services. And so John is called up to witness this awesome sight. Now, as things take place in the heavenlies during this divine worship, um, Judgment and salvation is meted out on the earth. In other words, when, when things take place in heaven during worship, it affects what happens on the earth. And I would submit to you that this is the same thing that happens to us every time we come into worship here on Sunday morning. We are called together into the throne room of God with John and all of the saints of old and all of the heavenly creatures and all of the angels and all of heaven because we have been given access there by Jesus Christ, the veil has been torn and we can now enter in and worship together with John and all of heaven before the throne of God. And as a result, stuff happens. Now in chapter 5, we see that a scroll is taken out, but nobody is worthy to open it. And John begins to weep. No one is in heaven is worthy to open the book. Why? Well, because all men have sinned from the very beginning, but Christ has not. It is through His spotless life and His sinless death that He has been found worthy to open the scroll. He has died the death of the covenant breaker, and therefore He has been found worthy. And John's weeping here is similar to the sorrow in our hearts that we experience in the beginning of the service when we come into the presence of God and we realize that we are sinners and that we have sinned against Him, which results in our confession of sin. We immediately acknowledge when we come into the presence of God that we are unworthy and in need of His cleansing blood, right? And here in this passage, we see the same thing. John weeps, but then he's told, weep no more. Because there's one who's been found worthy. And this, of course, is similar to the announcement of the assurance of pardon or the absolution that we hear in our services. The minister announces that it is by the blood of Jesus Christ that all of our sins have been forgiven. Uh, We have been set free from the bondage thereof. And uh, we are able to enter in now because Christ has been found worthy and He's able to cleanse us from all on righteousness. And so this is good news for us. Uh, Jesus is able to do that which is right with His church and the world. 
And why is that? Because he's worthy. John is told by one of the elders, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's hone in on verses 6 through 8 now. We'll read verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So there are so many metaphors running together here at once that we need to begin to untangle them a bit before we move on, lest we get confused. Up in verse 5, we're told that it is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is conquered, but here we're told it's the lamb. So which one is it? Is it the lion who conquers or is it the lamb? Well, the answer to the question is yes. <laughs> Both of these things are true at the same time. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who is descended from David and who has come to sit upon his throne. But he is also the lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this slaughtered lamb language points us back to the Passover lamb. And Paul tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It is through his blood that we have been sheltered from the wrath of God that is to come. And we have been set free from the bondage of our sin and the enslavement of our old taskmaster, the devil. But moreover, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He, according to this passage, he is the, um, the root of David. Um, he is the promised seed, the divine son of David, who has come to sit upon his throne and reign forever. So, so Jesus is the conquering king as well. And how does he conquer? Conquers through sacrifice. He conquers by laying down his life. He's the greater king. He's the good king who lays down his life for his people. So he is both. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the king and he is the servant and he is the sacrifice and he is the savior. He is our all in all. He is everything that we need to live and to move and to have our being. He is the conqueror. And in order for us to conquer, we must walk in His way. Friends, God's way is not the world's way. God has called us to an upside-down way of living as far as the world is concerned. He's called us to a cross-centered life, a life of humility and willing sacrifice. Uh, Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that we're to have the same mind in us that Christ had, which is what? That even though He was in the form of God, He doesn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he becomes a man. What does this mean? Well, he, he doesn't consider the position that he has in heaven as king of the universe something to be grasped and hold on to and held on to, but he leaves that and he comes to earth and he becomes a servant and not just a servant, but a bond slave, a slave to men and a slave to God. And he is willing and obedient to follow his father's will into the very death, even the death of a cross, which is the most wretched death that one can die. It's the most, one of the most horrible forms of execution that you can possibly imagine. And Jesus Christ willingly submits himself to this, and as a result, God has highly exalted him. And Paul says that we're to have this same mind in us. 
We are to esteem the next man better than ourselves. We are to put the needs of our friends and those who we encounter above our own, selflessly, self-sacrificially serving them day in and day out. And in so doing, God gets the victory. God conquers in this way. What are some other ways that this happens? Some of you have lost loved ones as of recently. And as those believers uh, learn to suffer well, they learn to die well and look to Christ throughout their death, pointing to Him, praising Him, praying to Him, showing everyone and everyone, uh, everything and everyone around Him that there's something bigger than themselves in their situation. God is getting the victory in that. God is, God is getting the glory through that believer's death and Christ conquers. Some of you are suffering and going through trials. Some of you know people who are suffering and who are going through trials. And friends, let me tell you, if as you suffer well, as you learn to persevere in faithfulness, God is shaping you and He's molding you and He's making you more like His Son into His image. And in that, God gets the glory because the world sees Christ in you, sees Christ's sufferings. This is how Christ conquers. He, he shows everyone that our suffering is not the end, that this world is not the end, that there's more to life than what meets the eye. So it matters. Our suffering matters because Christ has conquered. Further, we see in this passage that because Christ has conquered, our worship matters. Moving on in verses 7 and 8. Let's read that. In verse 7 we read, And he went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In 7 and 8, the Lamb uh, came up to the throne of God and took the scroll. And you, you must understand that a very dramatic scene is taking place in heaven when John says that the Lamb came and took the scroll. Uh, John uses this word uh, in such a way as to make us slow down and pay real close attention to what's happening. You have to imagine the scene. It's, it's sort of an awkward moment. The, the scroll's been presented. It's the answer to all the world's problems but there's nobody who's able to open it. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've, you've gone on a, a mission into the jungle. And um, later on, you're all by yourself back at the lodge. And without your knowing, a highly venomous snake sneaks through the door. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you get bitten and the deadly venom begins to course through your veins. You're stumbling. You fall to the ground. You can't walk. You can't stand. Your vision begins to blur. You're fading in and out. And, and just as you're about to um, spiral off into a coma, you look on the counter there and you see, there it is, the anti-venom. They, they have it there on the counter for you, but it's just beyond your reach. There's nobody there to help you administer it. It's the only thing that could possibly save you, but there's no way you're going to get to it. And just as you begin to um, slip off into eternity, 
you see a hand reach out and grab the antivenom. And as everything fades to black, you feel the warm elixir poured into your mouth and suddenly you're revived. This is very similar to what's taking place in heaven here when John sees the, um, the vision, um, when John sees the lamb and the scroll. John is, John is feeling destitute. Um, he, he knows that somebody needs to open that scroll, but there is nobody in all of heaven and in all of earth who is able to open it. And then suddenly, the Lamb of God, he ascends the throne, he walks up to the throne of God, and he took the scroll. You have to understand that that John is rejoicing and relieved all at the same time here. The Lamb took the scroll. There is hope for humanity. The Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Now, Naturally, the question that arises in your mind is, what is this scroll, right? Um, and and the, the Greek word here that is used is biblos, which is where we get our English word Bible, right? Biblos, Bible, Biblos, kind of would sound more like it. Uh, so it's a book. It's, it's a Bible of sorts. Uh, but this is a particular book, which is written on a scroll, and on the front and back of the paper there is writing, And along this scroll, there are seven seals which seal up each one of the seven sections of the book. So as you crack a seal, another section opens up, and you crack another seal, so you get all seven. And this scroll is very similar to the ones that we uh, see spoken of throughout the Old Testament. Um, Specifically, uh, you see them in uh, Ezekiel and in uh, Jeremiah, um, but more specifically in Isaiah, and in this particular instance... Uh, it has particular reference, I think, to the scroll that we see in the book of Daniel. And there, in that case, the scroll is referring to a covenantal document. <laughs> and uh, don't let that phrase scare you. The, um, only, the only thing you've got to know about this covenantal document business for now is that um, throughout uh, the Old Testament, when God did a saving work among his people, afterwards he would reveal a further revelation of his will for their lives to them. For instance, after the people come out of Egypt, uh, they go down there to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the Mosaic Covenant, um, which is the Mosaic Law. It's, it's guidelines and stipulations for how the people are to live and how to, they're to interact with one another, how they're to worship God, and so forth. And, and in this instance, much of the same thing is happening. Uh, the final blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has now been slain. And since then, God's apostles have been going out about dispersing this new revelation, this new will uh, for the people's lives. And John's book is part of that revelation. Um, John's book is the final revelation, as it were. Now, if we were to go back and look at Daniel we would see that God tells Daniel that the final words of the revelation that he is giving to him are to be sealed up and that they would not be revealed until the time of the end. That is the time of the end of the old covenant. And that time has now come. The new covenant has been ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's a further revelation being given. As a matter of fact, John is is told the exact opposite in his book, Uh, uh, what Daniel is told. If you look at the end of Revelation, John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 
So John is to reveal all. John's book or his scroll represents in a word the New Covenant or the New Testament, which promises God's people an inheritance in the promised land. That is, it promises God's people um, an eternal uh, life in God's presence. But John's document is also filled with all kinds of woes and judgments, which is obvious from the fact that each time uh, one of the seven seals is opened, judgment falls upon the earth. Um, So, it's indicative of the fact that this document includes in it the covenantal curses as long as the blessings of salvation. Um, and, and I would say that this is due to the fact that the old covenant is now passing away, that the judgment's being poured out, and that those who broke the laws of that covenant are now coming under the curse, and that those who keep the laws of that covenant are going to be blessed, if that makes sense. Um, now, as I said, no one is able to open the scroll because of sin, because, um, because of sin, but Christ is sinless. He has suffered the death of the covenant breaker for all covenant breakers, and so he is able to open the scroll and disperse its contents. And each time he opens uh, the scroll, um, he unfolds historical judgments on the apostate nation of Israel, and in the end he gives eternal life to God's people, uh, the church. And the words of this covenant are good news to those of us who are being saved. The the words of the covenant are, are a good smelling, a sweet smelling aroma for those of us who are being saved. But for those who are perishing, it is a stench. Um, for those of us who will hear it, it is life. But for those of us who will not, it is death. And for the believer, even the judgment of God is good news because it is in the judgment of God that God's people are saved. So, it's good news. When we hear the words of the prophecy being read, when the book is open to us, um, it is a blessing. But when we open the Word of God, isn't this what happens when the unbeliever hears it? He bristles. He, he, uh, he, he does not want to hear it because it is condemnation to him. But for the believer, it's life and every good thing. So again, I would say we have here the next segment of the worship service in heaven. The the word of God is being opened and read. Next, we see in our passage that all of heaven falls down in worship before Christ when he takes the scroll. They fall down and they begin to sing a new song, which is the only proper response. Read that in verse 8. He says... And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. So what does this all tell us? Well, that worship is not something that's insignificant in the life of the believer. It matters. Worship is the most important thing that we do. It is the thing that we do. Because it is in worship, when we come in here every Sunday morning, 
and faithfully worship the triune God that he changes the world. Now, in the, in the Old Covenant, um, the, the uh, war that God fought was often with a sword, and the enemies of God were physical, visible enemies. But Paul says it's not so in the New Testament, but that we wrestle with flesh and blood and principalities and powers. That is, we're fighting a spiritual battle. Our, our battle is with angels and, and demons, and our weapons are prayer and the Word of God. And as we come here every Sunday morning and faithfully pray to God, wrestling Him over the world and all of its ills, God changes things. Sometimes we don't see these changes. Sometimes we do. Sometimes they don't take place until after we're gone. But God is always listening and God is always acting and God is always faithfully at work to further His kingdom in the world. And it's the same when we open the Word of God and read it. When we open the Word of God in our service, we are reciting the covenant promises of God before His people and before all of creation. And God is faithful to act in accordance with His Word. He will do what He has said He will do in His Word. Uh, we are reminding God of His promises when we read excuse me, His Word to Him. And it is the same with the sacraments. When we faithfully administer and exercise the sacraments week in and week out, we are reminding God of His promises, and God is faithful to act according to them. God comes to to judge and to to bless each week when we worship here together. He comes to give His good gifts to us. He comes to bring judgment and salvation in the church and in the world. Every Lord's Day, He comes and He visits us. He comes and He walks in our midst by the Spirit, uh, up and down these aisles, watching, listening, um, investigating, examining. And if he finds faithfulness, he will bless our prayers and he will cause them to prosper. Um, but if he does not, he'll remove our candlestick, according to the book of Revelation, which basically means that this ch- the church will implode upon itself and come to nothing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the church will become a joke. People will drive by and they will laugh and, and mock the ridicule that we have become. But this is not God's will for us. It's God's will that we would be a light and a blessing to this community, a city set on the hill, a place where the, the, the abundance of God is, God's blessing is being poured out in such a way that all the people of Princeville are drawn here to come up and worship with us, that they want to worship with us and bless God with us. And if they come up here and they bless us, they'll be blessed. But if they don't, if they hate us and scorn us, they'll be cursed. This is, this is the way that it has always been. Um, when the church is faithful to do her job as a worshiping body, uh, she becomes a venue of blessing to all of the community around it. But when she does not, she will become insignificant of no, and of no use. The church will not speak against evil. Uh, she will not have a restraining effect in her society. And as a result, the town around it will go down the tubes further and further into idolatry and abomination. This is the way that it's always been. So it matters. What we do here in worship matters. As, as the old saying goes, uh, as goes the church, so goes the world. And it is true. Uh, John Piper has said that, that missions exist because worship doesn't. And I think he's right. So it matters because when we come in here and faithfully worship God every Sunday morning, week in and week out, he changes the world. He draws the nations in 
to worship himself. But we must be faithful to do that job as a worshiping body, drawing people in to worship God together here with us. And then that promise in the scriptures, the blessed promise that one day the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And God has promised, and that's a bit of a paraphrase of the, the text, but um, God has promised that he is going to bring this about, that he will be faithful to carry that work out. Uh, he says that I will be with you. He doesn't leave us alone. He's, he says, I'm going to come to you and help you carry out the work. We've just got to do it. So it matters. When, when we worship together here on Sunday morning, it matters because in our worship, Christ conquers. Christ has conquered and he does conquer. Finally, we see that because Christ has conquered, our service matters. In Revelation 5 9, we'll read that again. We'll finish the whole verse this time. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Again, when we compare Revelation 5.9 with Daniel 12.4, it seems that this passage in Revelation 5.9 is the fulfillment of what was being said there. In Revelation 12.4, it reads, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. That, my friends, is the historical context in which John is now speaking into. Christ the Lamb was slain, and therefore He has been found worthy to open the book, and disperse its contents as a result of his suffering and death. Here we see that he, just, that he does just that. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So this is the time of the end, the time of the end of the old covenant that Daniel looked forward to. And Jesus takes that book that was sealed up in Daniel, and he begins to open it, um, unfolding historical judgments uh, in the world on Israel, and in the end, he brings about the redemption of God's people, the church. Revelation 5.10 reads, And you have made them a kingdom and priests uh, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see here in 10 a reference to Exodus, uh, Exodus 19.6, and you'll have to go back there and read it. Um, But in that passage, God promised to make Israel into a kingdom of priests and into a holy nation. And in Revelation 5.10, this promise is coming to its final stage of fruition. God promised that the divine son of David, Jesus Christ, would sit on the throne and he would reign over Israel and they would be his kingly vice regents in the world, uh, exercising authority over the nations by bringing salvation to them. Well, in the New Covenant, uh, well, back in Daniel, the passage we read this morning, uh, we see that Christ uh, receives all authority and power. Um, you, you probably have it in your notes from this morning, but he says there, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. But before Christ can give his dominion to the saints, his priest kings on the earth, there's a great war that takes place 
uh, between the saints of the Most High and the beast of the earth. And uh, Kirk read that this morning. And that's looking forward to the battle that takes place between Jerusalem and Rome, the little horn of Daniel, leading up to the year A.D. 70. Uh, back in verses 21 and 22 of Daniel 7, we read, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And again, in verse 27, it says, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So both of these sections that I just read to you are parallels to Revelation 5.10. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the deliverance and freedom from sin that Christ has wrought through His death um, for His people uh, echoes back to the deliverance and freedom that the people experienced when they came out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. And after the Exodus, God promised Israel that He would make them into a kingdom of priests and that He would give them the land as their inheritance. Listen to Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is Mine, and you shall, shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what Daniel 7 and Revelation 5.9 together are telling us is that the original promise that God made to Israel that they would inherit the land has been universalized in the New Covenant, and the whole earth has been given to God's New Covenant people, the church, the new Israel. And it is through them that Christ now reigns on the earth. Christ in the Great Commission, He tells us, I have been given all authority and power in heaven and earth. Now go and disciple the nations. And and He will finish that work of subjecting all things to himself. And he does this through the preaching of the gospel. That's how it works now. As we go out and extend the word of God to the nations and people bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, the kingdom of God spreads in the world. This is the means that God has determined to carry it out. And in this way, the promise that the the, 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 the divine son of David would have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth is going to be fulfilled. Our passage says that he has made us into a kingdom of priests and that we shall reign on the earth. Friends, that verse is a reality for those of us who are living in the church today. Each week at the end of the service, we are sent out into the world with the sword, but it is no longer the physical sword. It is the sword of spirit with which we go out and when uh, this sword of the Spirit is implemented, the word of the gospel, when it is preached, men are put to death. Their old man dies and they become a new man in Jesus Christ. And in this way, as we individually meet with people and share the gospel with them, and they bow the knee to Christ as Lord, His kingdom extends in the world. And then He gives them a sphere of influence that they exercise in the world as kings and priests. Each one of us has, has been given a sphere of influence that we are to work within um, every job that we do, every task that we perform is holy. It's to be done sacred and unto the Lord. Whether you're 
a mechanic or a grandparent. You're to seek to do your task to the best of your ability. And when you do that, you are exercising authority, God's authority in the world, and God gets glory. He spreads his kingdom through you and through your work and through your service. Um, whether you're, If you're an artist or a musician, you're to seek to cultivate your gifts to the highest degree, producing the best material that the world has ever seen. And in this, God exercises authority. Um, if, if you're a parent or um, a child or a teenager, if you're a student, a teacher, a, a store clerk, a janitor, whatever your job may be, you're to seek to perform your duties with excellence, finding out what God has said about your particular station in life. And then in, when, in that, when you do these things, God is glorified. God uses that to extend his kingdom. But all the while, we're to remember that we're also priests. We're kings and priests. And so we're to be taking men by the shirt sleeve, as it were, and, and, and bringing them here with us to worship Christ. Um, each one of us have ministries that the Lord has committed to us, people that, uh, that we're supposed to be praying for, people that we are to love and to bless and to help and to have a ministry to. You all have ministries to these people. And in this way, you become a blessing and a light to them and to the world. And in so doing, Christ reigns through you here on the earth as kings and priests. So Christ will be faithful to fulfill his, his mission to disciple the nations. And he has, he has chosen to use the church to bring this about. And we must be faithful to see this work carried out. And he will not forsake us in it. As I said, he will be with us until the very end. It is the mission of the church. It's God's mission. And in his grace, he has decided to make us a part of it. So our service matters. Because Christ has conquered and does conquer, our service matters. So in the final analysis, um, it matters. What you do for Christ in this world is purposeful, whether it's service, whether it's worship, whether it's suffering, or whatever it may be. If you are faithful to do it as unto God, God will be faithful to use it in the world to extend his kingdom. So it matters. Everything matters. In Christ, it matters. For the believer, it matters. Because Christ has conquered, and He does conquer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for our time together in Your Word. God, I pray that uh, Your Word would do its work that You sent it forth to do in our hearts today. That it would convict us, that it would change us, that it would strengthen us, that it would embolden us to go out and do Your kingdom work. As we are kings and priests, here on this earth, and you have determined to use us to reign, to disciple the nations, to bring all peoples to yourself, and we pray that you may be glorified in that work. We look forward to the day when all of the nations are bowing the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord, and his praise is upon their lips. Let it be, Lord, let it be. We commit this to you in his name. Amen.